Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, I'm Evelyn Reisdyke. Hi, I'm John Carousella, and this is A Shamanic Life. Welcome to A Shamanic Life with your host, John Carousella. On our program today, our featured guest is Evelyn Reisdyke, an internationally recognized shamanic author, speaker, teacher, and healer. John will also speak with Karen Armstrong, founder of the Shamanic Life online community. Later in the show, John will talk with Stephen McNamara, whose music is influenced by his childhood in South Africa and the mystical power of Indian ragas. In Spirit, Muse, and Song, we'll hear some of his amazing music. Also on today's program, visionary artist Annette Wagner joins John for part three of The Vision Plan, a business plan from the heart. Yevgeny Asakin talks about his upcoming workshop and the power that comes from the magic of pure consciousness. And Gina Carousella will share the sensory experience, a deep dive into the world of the senses. We're not just doing shamanism, we're living it. Come along with us. It's a shamanic life. Welcome, everybody, to A Shamanic Life. This is John Carousella. And boy, oh boy, have we got a show for you tonight. And uh, I have to tell you, I'm live at the controls tonight for the first time. Our goal is to is to do A Shamanic Life live more often than not. And um, we're going to do the segment with Karen Armstrong live as well. And so I'm just waiting for her to show up in the studio so that we can begin this crazy extravaganza. Meanwhile, uh, I think uh, the, the what do you do when you don't have anything to talk about? You talk about the weather. We've had spectacular weather here in Northern California. It is a beautiful springtime. We've just gone through Ostara and April Fool's Day, and uh, it feels great. Everything is alive. Everything is glowing, and it's time to do some gardening. So I, I know I have big plans for my garden this year, and I'm so looking forward to getting my hands dirty, um, getting them in the, in the soil, working the soil, and uh, planting some vegetables so that I can eat clean, organic, untreated food. And we've got the, the blessings of a beautiful set of plum trees and a couple of cherry trees. And I'm hoping for a great fruit set for them as well. So uh, looking for my partner in crime here, Karen, to show up. We'll um, expecting her momentarily. And uh, I just wonder um, how folks are feeling about the show. One of the things that I would really like to do is get some feedback from those of you who have listened 
uh, and and let us know what what you like about it, what you don't like about it. It's a new show, so and as a format, we're still experimenting with uh, a variety of things and different uh, different lengths and different segments and so on. So if you have ideas or comments or feedback that you'd like to offer, and we really would appreciate it, you can visit the Shamanic Life Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash slash shamanic life, or you can uh, send me an email directly, jc at fireflywillows.com, or you can email Karen at karen at shamaniclife.com, and that's K-A-R-Y-N. So looking for my partner here still. Karen, are you there? <laughs> She's probably saying yes, yes, but I she can't I can't hear her. <laughs> oh well. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's fun about doing radio is um that we get to connect with people. Uh and my guests uh on on the show tonight are really quite fascinating. Uh, and I know you'll I know you'll enjoy them. Um, Evelyn Reisdyke is uh, a really powerful lady, a lot of fun. Um, I, I think she goes by Shamama Bear out there in Maine, where she's from, and uh, she really is uh, a joy to be around and a joy to talk to. And um, of course, we have uh, Annette Wagner on the show, who's working on the Vision Plan from the Heart, and that's the work of Shiloh. Um, What's her name? Sophia Shiloh McLeod. Um, we're going to go over the uh, – and I had the Vision Plan experience uh, this weekend, uh, this past weekend with her, and that was really spectacular. And um, I've got Yevgeny Sakin on the show, and this is a guy who I've met uh, about three years ago, and he has gone to some wild places and visited power places and uh, shamans and, and masters and mediums. He's been around the Western U.S., Brazil, the U.K., Russia, even as far as Siberia and, uh, and, and Eastern Russia, China, and Mongolia. So he's been, he's been around the block a few times, and that's going to be a very interesting segment as well. And finally, uh, well, in addition, we've got uh, Stephen McNamara. His music really took me. Um, I, I've got this kind of a sweet spot for for Indian ragas, and uh, uh, his music is this kind of a mix between uh, modern and Indian, and his his string work is just spectacular. So I'm looking forward to that. It looks like maybe Karen's not going to be able to join us today. So rather than keep you waiting, uh, listening to me blabber on, I'm going to head on into the show, and um, I'll be back periodically throughout the show. So, enjoy. Welcome back. I'm John Carousella, and this is A Shamanic Life. With me today is Evelyn Reisdyke. Whether through face-to-face contact with individual patients workshop and conference participants, or through the printed word, Evelyn uses her loving humor and passion to open people's hearts and inspire them to live more joyful and purposeful lives. She's an internationally recognized shamanic teacher, healer, and speaker, and author who delights in supporting people to remember their sacred place in creation. 
Along with her books, Spirit Walking, A Course in Shamanic Power, and Modern Shamanic Living, New Explorations of an Ancient Path, she has written a chapter for Spirited Medicine, Shamanism, and Contemporary Healthcare, numerous articles for journals, and was featured in Traveling Between the Worlds, a book of interviews with 24 of the most influential teachers and writers of shamanism. Her website is www.spiritpassages.com. Welcome, Evelyn. <laughs> Hi, John. It is good to have you. Uh, I have had the, uh, uh, the pleasure of connecting with you over the Shamanic Life online community, and you are a spirited lady. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, with that in, in mind, um, I want to talk to you um, about your latest book, Spirit Walking. But before we get to that, um, share with us a little bit about how you found yourself on this path. Well, that, it's a, probably a story that's common to a lot of people in shamanism. I was a very successful business person. I was actually in advertising in New York. I was an art director and creative director. And in my early 30s, I hit the wall. I had an extreme depression, the kind of which that uh, makes you feel that the color is drained out of the world. I, I liken it to a horse that's walking along with the blinders on either side. It's like your world narrows down to this tiny experience of what it could be. And I did all the usual going to psychotherapy. I was using medication to be able to sleep at night, but as is my usual modus operandi, I was looking for something else, some way to pull myself back into the world, pull my or pull the world back to me, whichever way had it fallen away. And um, I looked at a catalog for the new school in New York, and it's like the uh, Open Center and Omega and all those different kinds of places. And um, it has a whole list of, you know, 101 things to completely change your life, most, most of which I had never heard of before. And uh, two appealed to me. One was Zen archery, become the bow, become the arrow. And the other was the way of the shaman with Michael Harner. And because I had had an interest as an artist in uh, tribal work, uh, tribal artwork in particular, and uh, altered consciousness experience that informed artwork, I thought, well, this, this sounds interesting. Let me do that. And if you know Michael Harner, he's a wonderful storyteller. So uh, the first half of the first day was him telling stories. And it was delightful. I was in this room with probably 150 people sitting on the floor, which was an unusual experience for me as a, <laughs> to begin with. And he was a delightful storyteller as a in that weekend. And uh, we finally got a chance to do our first journey. And so now the 150 people are now lying on the floor and have blindfolds on. And as soon as he began beating the drum, and it was a lower world journey, I went to this experience, went into this experience that gave me the feeling in my body that possibility had come back. Ooh. It wasn't a specific possibility. It was as if those blinders had been taken away and I could start to see color and feel that there was more again. Again, no specific mores, but that energy of more. And that's what pulled me onto this path because I felt in those few moments so much better than I had felt actually for all of my previous life. I'd realized in an acute depression that I had actually been dysthymic 
for most of my adult life. So mm. that experience just pulled me into myself again. It pulled the color back into the world, and that put me with both feet, both hands, and a full heart onto the path because nothing had me feel that good before. Wow. Wow. And 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 what happened after that? In a few weeks, I was actually able to uh, stop going to see the psychotherapist. She said, oh, well, I don't know, whatever you're doing, it seems to be working. I no longer needed medication to uh, quiet my mind to sleep at night. And I just started to learn as much as I could about the process, about tribal shamanism, just everything. I devoured it because this was something that felt so real, so tangible, and so um, vibrant. It like engaged all of my senses in a way that very few things had, and yet it brought all the best of me along. You know, my creative self came along with me. My artist self came along with me. My sense of humor came along with me, and it just brightened up all of that. And, and what got left behind in this process? I think the the part of me that felt disconnected or unplugged that that's the experience for me of depression is somehow the rope has become uh, has been cut on your your uh, on the the ship the part of the ship that you're on or you see those uh, movies where the uh, bad guys in the train pull the pin and half the train goes off on itself that's the feeling for me that depression has that you're somehow disconnected from yourself from the world around you from other people there's this feeling of isolation in it and so that sense of disconnection that is i think very human experience and it goes to an extreme when you are depressed that fell away and my my journey is really to step more and more and more deeply into connection, more and more deeply into relationship because of the healing that I felt in it. Hmm. And do you, do you sense that that is uh, an intrinsic aspect of shamanism, the, the, the recognition and um, not, just, not just recognition, but, but connection to relationship. I really do. I think because as shamanic practitioners or for tribal shaman, you're interacting with the visible world, certainly, but even the visible world becomes more. So I'm passing a tree on my way to work. It's not just a thing. It becomes a being that I can interact with. So, okay, so, so I want to talk about some more about that. I think we're going to get to that in a, in a little bit. But before we, before we vector off into that, and it's going to be a really cool part of the conversation, um, let's just, uh, it, it looks to me from, from what I know of you and, and what I see from spirit passages, uh, that you have created a livelihood from this. Absolutely. It, this is what I do now. I'm a teacher and a healer and a writer. And they're all... They all inform one another. They're mm -hmm. all about supporting people to step back into connection with themselves, certainly in the healing work, but th through all of them to connect back to the way we were meant to be. You know, we are part of all that is. We're part of creation, but as human beings, we can fall out of awareness of that. 
Yeah, well, yeah, we sure do, don't we? Yeah, well, we get fooled by the information that our senses give us. You know, our senses are actually very limited. They're marvelous and and never want to diminish the sensory capacity that we have because if I were to lose my sense of sight or hearing or my sense of taste or the fact that I can smell wonderful things, I'd be bereft. But on the sa- at the same time, they're very limited. You know, hawks can see infrared. L- lots of creatures can see infrared. Insects can see ultraviolet. We can't see either one of them. Whales and elephants can hear beneath our hearing. Your dog can hear above your hearing. You know, there's so much of the world that we miss because it's not part of our sensory experience. And our sensory experience produces limitation. You know, when we're sitting with somebody in a room, we see ourselves as somehow separate from them. And yet there is no separation between us. Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. How long did it take you? I mean, you you were living down in the metropolitan New York area. <laughs> yes, I did. Right, and that's not an inexpensive place to live. And so you you walked away from that style of living, I presume. I did. And and embraced something radically different. How long did that process take you? Actually, a, a far shorter than you might imagine. I moved to Maine because I also realized that I needed to be in a place that I had more ready access to the natural world. Mm. Um, I grew up on Long Island in New York, and the eastern part of Long Island at one point was very rural. It was farms, it was open beaches, and pretty much all of Long Island looks like Queens now. Oh, dear. And, and, uh, so in moving Not that Queens is a bad place. No, 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 <laughs> but it, access to the natural world is harder. And yeah. it's not impossible but you have to work a lot harder to do it. And I wanted easy, ready access to the natural world, and that required me to move off of Long Island and uh, move to Maine. I moved to Maine without having uh, a job, without having any any way to support myself, and so I had to develop a practice. I had to develop a teaching practice, a healing practice, and just do what I knew how to do and share it and hope for the best. Wow. It was a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of experience. And and what has that manifested now? It's We're busy every single day with either healing clients or I'm working on a workshop or we have um, long-term trainings. We have two-year trainings. We'll be starting our 10th, actually, in April, our 10th two-year training. Wow. We have a graduate training for people that have taken other shamanic training programs and are looking to do kind of like a postgraduate program where we um, work with those advanced students and lots of weekend workshops and uh, speaking engagements and getting to do my writing. So it's it becomes this very complex, lots of moving parts Exciting way of living. It's very different than getting up and going to the exact same job every day to do kind of the exact same thing. But yeah. it's, it's very joyful. Well, I have to, you know, offer you a, con- a hearty congratulations because to have made that transition so honestly and uh, with so much trust and to have it manifest so so profoundly and beautifully and productively, right, is something I think we all 
admire and seek for ourselves? Well, I, I think, I don't think I did it alone. I think that's the trick. When you have the connection to spirit and you have teachers and guides that are willing to go with you the smallest steps as you need to take, you know, the tiniest steps, the shifts in perception that have to go with each step, that you have that kind of support and guidance, it 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 doesn't make it necessarily easier, but just as when you're walking with someone you care about in life, it's a little smoother. You know, if you have a partner that you, you love, if you have any kind of companion that is willing to walk with you on a journey, it makes it that much gentler, that much smoother. And I th- think for me, not only having human companions in the world, but having these spirits that know me and they love me unconditionally, they're willing to support me to be the most magnificent self that I'm capable of being, that's what makes it work. Well, it's 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 great to witness. It's great to, to hear the story and to have the opportunity to share in it. So Would you like to share your shamanic life with our audience? We're always looking for featured guests who aren't just doing shamanism, but living it. If you've got stories to tell about living a shamanic life, let us know. Your stories can illuminate the path for others. To join the show, contact us at facebook.com slash shamaniclife or send a message to Karen Armstrong, karen at shamaniclife.com or me, jc, at fireflywillows.com. We're ready to listen. Okay, so let's get down to some nitty-gritty. Um, <laughs> your latest book, Spirit Walking, it's about, um, you, you said something to, to the effect that it's uh, more, it helps people, gives people some grounded tools. Why did you write this book? Well, my experience of being taught shamanism in Western society is a very different experience, I'm sure, than being guided through shamanism in a tribal culture. I've been fortunate to work with several tribal shamans, and they grew up in a way of being that we as Westerners did not. They grew up with an understanding that they were woven into a world of spirits in the way that we didn't experience in this culture in the United States. And so supporting people back into relationship, I think, is the, is the challenge and also the way that people can develop much deeper shamanic power, for lack of a better word, that, that place where, you know, if you're with somebody who's got a long tradition of uh, shamanism in their tribal background, they live it, breathe it. It's a part of their everyday experience. They know the world through that lens. It's not something that they do as work or do as a sideline. It is who they are. And what is intrinsic in that is the fact that they're in relationship with the world around them. Mm-hmm. And so supporting people who don't necessarily have that way of being at the heart of their culture, at the heart of their family, at the heart of their experience, guiding them back into being in relationship. And what that means, what does it mean when 
suddenly you're now in an environment where everything around you really is alive. It's capable of being in conversation with you and that you then have the, all the responsibilities that come with being in relationship. You have all the excitement and joy of being in relationship. But, you know, I think it's because we don't necessarily do human relationship very well in our culture that people mm. need to be supported back into that because it is an old way of being. Our ancestors certainly lived in the world that way when they were hunter-gatherers. But we have forgotten, and so we need some support to get back into that. It's not, you know, shamanism isn't about a bunch of techniques that you learn. It's a, that the techniques can lead you back into that way of being, that way of being in connection. So, <clears throat> so you use the term reverent participatory relationship. What, what is a reverent participatory relationship? To me, it implies that you are, you know, that, that wonderful gesture that they do in the, in the Far East where they clasp their hands in front of them, their heart, and they say namaste. Mm. We saw a lot of that when we were visiting in Nepal. Namaste, the divine in me, in me is recognizing the divine in you. That is that sense of reverence. So there isn't that idea that I'm more or less important than any other part of creation. It's about recognizing that every being that we interact with has wisdom, has a consciousness, has awareness that may be different from ours, but it's equally as important. So that's that piece of reverence for me, that we're both if we're interacting with one another like we are. You're an aspect of the divine. I'm an aspect of the divine. And we have an opportunity to get to know each other. Participatory is that relationship is something that you have to not take for granted, but be interactive with. Tribal shamans are brilliant at being interactive with the spirits. They just don't just go and ask for something. They're always in that place of offering food. They're doing ceremony for spirit. They're doing that giving so that they receive. There's that sense of you have to participate in the process. You don't just sit back, ask for something, and then you get it and you're done. You have to be in, re- in, that, in that wheel, uh, what the... Um, people of the Andes call Aini, which is that sacred reciprocity. It's mm. a, it is a participatory event. So that is the place where I come, when I, when I talk about being in reverent participatory relationship, it means that it is an interaction and that that interaction has to be done in that atmosphere of mutual respect, of being open-hearted so that you are able to receive who that other being is and being open-hearted so that the other being can perceive who you are. And, and so how do we, you have some uh, advice on how we as modern humans can, can do that, that reciprocal part. I mean, you know, those of us who, who do shamanic journeys and have relationship with spirit, we often do exactly as you Identified, we go to them when we need something. In particular, if we're doing healing work or divination work, we go and ask for help. But what what are the things that we can be doing as as regular folks, not just just shamanic folks, but as regular folks too, to participate in that? You know, what can we give them? 
Well, like any relationship, it, I think it's best to ask. <laughs> ah. You know, if if you uh, want to be in a good relationship with your your partner, your spouse, you want to find out what it is they enjoy. You know, you have to engage in that way to find out. Well, what is it that would make this relationship work better for you? I'm I'm more than willing to share my needs, but I need to also hear yours, and then be willing to offer what it is that is needed by that partner or what is that desired by that partner. It's, it's really like, uh, you know, we talk about falling in love with the world or being in love with nature. Taking that a little more literally, if I am in love with nature, if I'm in love with the tree that's outside or the birds that come to my feeder, how is it that I can express that, express that love, Rather than just having an internal experience of that love, how can I make that love something that is an expression of who I am, an expression of that relationship? And go ahead. So, in a way, in a way, I, I have been coming back to this metaphor quite frequently. Uh, in a way, it's it's like the way a gardener loves his garden. Yes. Yes. Or that you would love, you know, if you have a pet that you adore, you know, your your dog or your cat or hamster or whatever it is you happen to have, you take good care of that being. You know, you you do things to make their life smoother, gentler, more comfortable. So beginning to think about those things, and it, it does require a little mind shift to think of all the beings that are around you have needs. They have wisdom they, you, you know you can step into relationship with one at a time you don't try to do it all at once because you'd be completely overwhelmed right but just to be in relationship with one in that deep way is so nurturing for the one that's in relationship so it's it, for, i'm thinking about myself it's nurturing to me to be able to provide for the birds that come and give me such incredible joy Right. Especially the ones that stay all winter here in Maine. Right. <laughs> you know, to to make sure that they have food, they have the the bird bath has a heater in it so that the waters uh flow all winter long and they get good suet and they get good food. It's a very simple thing. But it's my way of giving them something for all that they give me. Because nature always gives to us. I'll yeah. use nature as an example. It's always giving to us. So anytime you appreciate it by giving back, that mm. that helps to make a connection that is very palpable, at least to me. Inside my body, I feel much more connected to those beings around me when I put a piece of action in place. And I think that's why tribal shamans do so much ritual and ceremony. They do literal physical offerings of food, of sweets, of alcohol, whatever it might be, depending on the culture. Sometimes it's just incense. You're giving because you receive so much all the time. It is your natural desire to want to give, to be in that place, of, because you recognize how much that you, you're already receiving. So, so really the giving, this is an interesting and, and perhaps uh, subtle um, thing to draw out and that is there's two aspects to the giving that are that are important 
One is the giving based on an understanding of what the other desires. Mm-hmm. And the other is giving out of a sense of gratitude. And, and I think they go together, absolutely. And again, if we look at a romantic relationship, it's very much the same. If you want to be in a good relationship, you take the other person's needs into account and you give them a gift because you're getting a gift from them. There's this sense of, you know, of course I'll make you a cup of coffee. Thank you for that. You know, there's just this, all, you know, it's like you don't even have to keep track of who gave the last thing first. You know, there's this sense of it's just a flow. Each one mm-hmm. gives to the other and it's a beautiful flow. I think, and I think both of them are really important. You, you can't really just do one or the other. No, I don't think so either. Because, you know, if you, if, you, if you toss the tobacco out underneath the tree because you know the tree enjoys the tobacco, but you're not doing it because you have some gratitude, some, some, you're not reflecting on some aspect of your relationship with the tree, that doesn't really seem to be a complete way of contributing to that relationship. Right. Then you're just sort of doing an obligation, and I don't think an obligation is really relationship. Right. Right. Well said. Yeah. It's like an obligation, fulfilling an obligation as opposed to being in relationship. Exactly. Now, you mentioned something. You said don't do it all at once because um, you start to establish relationship. You start to see relationship with all of the things that are alive around you. It's kind of overwhelming. And a friend of mine, we, we were talking about this, how, you know, what happens when you see when you really see the world through those lenses where you say everything that is is alive and is willing to be in relationship with you and he said you know that's why Mircea Eliade called it archaic techniques of ecstasy oh completely because because if everything is is cool with you and excited to to participate in relationship with you you're in you're in a non-stop party yep you know everything around you is willing to participate in relationship with you. And it is. Yeah. It can be completely overwhelming in that in that sweetest way that it kind of jams all the circuits, you know, there's no space for anything else when you realize every you have never been alone. You've always been surrounded by these giving beings that you didn't realize they were there before. It's like suddenly I, I can imagine it's like somebody who was adopted suddenly recognizing they're part of this enormous family and they're welcomed back with open arms because that's and, and the family and the family's always been there. Yes. The lights have been down really low and so you haven't been able to see them. Exactly. <laughs> that's is really it. It's that's pretty exciting. So um is that why being in relationship with the natural world and other species is so important? Is it based on the relationship or is there more to it than that? Because you said you know, that it was important for you to get to a place where you could experience nature more readily. I, I think we're meant to be in relationship with the natural world. We're, we're meant to be under the sky, not all the time, certainly, and certainly not in winter in Maine all the time, <laughs> but to be, to be out under the sky, breathing air, letting the sun shine on our skin, you know, being by the sea, we're part of that experience for more 
time than we've been inside shelters and living with you know artificial lighting for many more thousands and thousands of years we were outside you know that is our natural environment so putting people back outside is certainly part of what we do in our workshops having them step outside to do exercises with the trees with the lakeside whatever it happens to be to intentionally bring people out because we've lost the natural inclination to do that it's it's a different experience when we're living the traditional western culture where a lot of people don't go outside at all except oh, to step to their car it's it's kind of crazy you know you think about how much time we spent out, evolved in being outside a friend of mine once said you know i don't think we get enough moonlight right you know, and if you think about it, you know, we, we get less moonlight than we get sunlight. Right. And, and we, we get a very small smidgen of sunlight as it is. Right. And, you know, that's one of the things that I love to do is sleep outside, literally sleep outside in my backyard. I live mm -hmm. in suburbia, you mm -hmm. know, but I throw a tarp down, I throw down a bunch of blankets, um, and I just crawl under them. And, you know, I live in California, so it's I have the option to do that more more often than not <laughs> and it's 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 such a i wake up in the morning having slept on the ground bathed in moonlight and starlight and i feel so different after that experience oh. it's like it's like a, it's like a completely different physiological cycle yeah if, if i sleep outside Absolutely. And, and the the starry nights, I think, you know, so many of us can't even see the constellations anymore because there's so uh, much ambient light. And yeah. to be able to go to a place where it is still dark, really dark, right? that you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face, which that's a very rare experience. But on a moonless night in those dark places where it, there are so many stars visible, you can't recognize the constellations. Exactly, exactly. I've had those experiences. You look up and it's like, whoa, it's crowded up there. <laughs> yep, yep. And none of, none of the constellations look familiar. You can see the Milky Way and there's something so profound to put yourself under that, that blanket of stars. It, and that sounds very trite, but it really it feels like a blanket. It's completely seamless from horizon to horizon, yeah. completely paved with stars. And it puts you back into context. It's yes. Like, you know, nature has a way of putting us back into context. Mm. Yeah, I like that. It puts us back. So that's, that's really important. Being in nature allows you to find your way back into context. Mm -hmm. and, and that ultimately that comes back down to being in relation to everything that's around you in a, in a, profound and and balanced and in some way accurate way well i know if if you pay attention i can tell when the sap begins to rise in the tree on the corner of our driveway it i can tell the day that the sap begins to rise again because something about that tree changes and you know you can pass the tree every single day all winter long and the tree is definitely asleep doing the root work, not engaged with above ground work at all. 
And yet there is that moment when you know the sap has begun to rise. Mm. And it's just, it's like, oh, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it'll be a long time still before you have leaves, but you know the tree is beginning to wake up. It's kind of, the feeling in my body is uh, when my little nephew was small and he'd come padding out of the bedroom in the morning with his little feety pajamas on, you know. And, I, I still have some of those. <laughs> well, there you go. And you, you know how uh, how incredibly precious they look when they first get up. Yeah. You know, yeah. they have this excitement about the world. They've been in dreamland. They allow themselves to completely fall asleep and surrender to sleep like adults <laughs> forget how to. Yeah. And that's that same feeling, like you have this sense of the tree is just beginning to wake up again, and there's this kind of, wow, it's a, it's a new springtime kind of energy coming from it. And it's, it makes me weep. It's so beautiful. Oh, and yes. it's, it's just precious. It is precious. It's very, very beautiful. Uh, I love that. Mm. I think that kind of intimacy is... You know, there is one place where we, where we, as modern humans, have that kind of intimacy with the natural world. Are, and that, oddly enough, is through the connoisseur of wine. Mm. You know, they, they taste the rain. They taste the sunshine. They taste the, the, everything about the terroir of, of a place. You know, and whether it was a good season for those grapes and so on. Absolutely. Something that they can. So it's not unheard of for us as modern people to have that kind of intimate relationship and sensitivity, that exquisite sensitivity to our world. If only we embraced it in more dimensions than just red wine. (laughs) Well, you know, if people admitted to themselves how they can read the expression on their dog or cat's face. That if they're not making it up. They really can tell by the subtle ear shift, the raise of a brow, the way that that animal looks at you. There's a consciousness behind those eyes, and you, are, you understand the unspoken language between you two. You know, it's there. I yeah, think, it really is I there. I think we, we have the wiring for it. It's just that we have to remember that we can do it. Ah, the journey. It's fundamental to shamanism. If you've had a journey that made a difference in your life and you feel called to share it, consider sharing it with us. In Tales from the Road, we offer the surprising stories and insights that come from your journeys with the power to change lives. Of course, respect your power. Share only as you're called to. If you're interested, contact me, John Carousella, on Facebook or by email at jc at fireflywillows.com. So uh, tell me, uh, share if you can, um, how have your experiences with with tribal shamans uh, in particular? Because many of us have trained in neo-shamanism and in core shamanic uh, practices. What is special about tribal shamans? I think it's because what we've been talking about is an intrinsic part of their experience. Mm -hmm. That when you've grown up in a culture, oftentimes tribal shamans haven't moved very much. They have lived in a place all of their lives 
they their ancestors who lived in the same place or close by and so there's this deep connection to place there's a mm. deep connection to the land the beings that are on the land and so they have that piece of context as european american i'm a european american i'm a displaced person even though my ancestors have been on this continent for as long as 400 years and as short, depending on the ancestor, as short as only 100 years, there is this sense of being displaced. And I think for many people, we are displaced people. We don't have that sense of connection to a specific place. It's not that we can't cultivate it where we are, but we have to be much more intentional about it. It's right. not it's not just a what so this is the land this is the land my grandparents lived on this is the house my grandparents lived in you know I know that mountain intimately we don't have that as much the very no, that's right. even those that have some continuity it's really only for 3 or 4 generations so to yeah, have yeah yeah what was it the native people said something like uh there's a native saying you're never not really at home until you're built from the bones of the the dust of the bones of your ancestors. Right, right. And even, you know, the tribal people of North America have been displaced, so many of them don't live on their ancestral yeah. lands either. Yeah, yeah. So I think we have to cultivate that sense of place, being in relationship with the space that we happen to be on, whether it be in a suburban lot, or we can be in relationship with the little trees that are that, that have a space cut out of the sidewalk if we live in a city, it doesn't matter. We need to be in relationship where we are with the beings that are there. We, uh, we taught a number of years ago in um, Montreal, and the group met in Montreal, but when they did their weekend workshops, they went to the country. And so this was wintertime, and the, the country place was not available for us to teach. So we were teaching on the seventh floor of a Masonic temple in, in uh, Montreal. And we had them do rituals outside. It was wintertime, too. We had them do rituals outside of making offerings to those little trees that live in the city, the trees that wind up being you know toilets for all the little poodles that go by. They needed to recognize how precious those trees are to them when they live in, in a place that's mostly concrete, to be in relationship with those little trees that bravely poke up from those holes we cut in the sidewalk, and how much they appreciate them, because if they weren't there, how different their experience of being in the city was. Mm. And so we made them ride down the elevator with their little offerings. We had them do simple offerings using a, a slice of bread as a plate. And they spread out from where we were, and they found their tree, and they did these heartfelt offerings of thanks to those trees. Now, I'd be willing to bet those trees grew so much better the next season yeah, because bet. someone noticed them. They weren't right. just background noise. They were living beings. Mm. That's and, beautiful. So um, we're we're almost out of time. Um, I was wondering if you had maybe a uh, a dramatic experience that that you could share from your practice that uh, you know somehow somehow something that one of your top five. Oh gosh, 
I guess I'm very fortunate, John, to say that having to come up with a top five would be really hard. <laughs> okay. Because it, whether they be my personal experience of being blown away by the uh, the spirits that are around me, having profound experiences in nature, or holding space and supporting someone else to either experience them, their healing that they've received or their first connection with spirit. I mean, I get those kind of things happen a lot. I think that's why it's so good to be on this path because I'm enriched every single day. Mm. You know, I've had peak experiences by going to places in the natural world where I can be with grizzly bears or I can be with polar bears or I can go and visit the Himalayas and I've had those kind of experiences but they are within the context of having magnificent experiences every day. Mm. So it's just like you you crank it up even more but it's it's part of this bigger landscape of wonder and excitement and you know having ups and downs like everybody else you know we have days when it's miserable to get up in the morning because you don't feel well and things maybe not going as well as you would prefer but it's always within this richer context of it really is okay i'm held by the beings around me and i'm willing to open my heart and be with them mm. it's beautiful okay so um any any last thought comment or um recommendation that you want to share with our our listeners well i i would just recommend that you find one being in the natural world a being that's not human and find a way to step into relationship do your journeys to find out what their name is what they like how you can be in relationship and Make that a focus for a year to find out how to be in that relationship and actually be in it. And do it consciously for a year and see. It would be great to have a, another interview in a year to have people check in on the radio and say, this is what happened to me over that year. This is the change in me that I felt. This is my change in experience of that being that I noticed. I, th- I think there would be some pretty profound responses. Yeah, I bet there would be. That's that's a cool idea. Okay, so everybody out there, pick a tree or um, a shrub or something that you can visit and invest yourself in deep relationship for a year. And and then tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so uh, Evelyn, if folks want to get to know you and or your work a little bit better, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Oh, the best thing is to just go to our website. It's www.spiritpassages.com and you have links there for email and our newsletter and our telephone is there as well. So we're always glad to connect with people. Wonderful. Evelyn, thank you so much for sharing time with us. Uh, it was really enjoyable and I know we'll hear from you again. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. Take care. All right, and we'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying today's program. You can find archives of A Shamanic Life and our other thoughtful and provocative programs at blogtalkradio.com slash fireflywillows, L-I-V-E. 
Check out Convergence, my monthly radio magazine where science and mysticism meet, the third Sunday of every month. Or one of our other interesting shows and their interesting hosts, blogtalkradio.com slash fireflywillows, L-I-V-E. Come join us. Okay, this is A Shamanic Life, and I'm John Caracella, here with visionary artist, creativity coach, and shamanic practitioner Annette Wagner for part three in our series on the vision plan. And this time we're going to talk about the legend. legend. The legend. Now, what's cool is that uh, over the weekend I had the opportunity to participate in this experience. And I really loved working with the, the paint and the paper. It was a really rich experience for me. I, um, freeing. Freeing and soothing, I guess I would say, you know. And I got a lot out of it, and I put a put a lot down on my vision plan, uh, except for one area where I only wrote the word legend. <laughs> 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 so clearly, there's something else. Uh, there's something that I need to to reach into here in this legend section. So. Annette, why don't you help us out here? Help me out here. (laughs) (laughs) I would be more than happy to. So just for our listeners, I'll recap a little bit of where we're at. So we're creating, we're on the first half of the vision plan, which has eight panels, and legend is the second of those panels. So last time we worked on passion and asking what our calling and our purpose is. This time we're going to dive into the question of legend and I want to set a little bit of context and and I'm going to take the red thread that John and I um, actually used in creating our, um, our vision plans together and I'm going to put it in the center of the table. So we have that red thread and let that kind of ground us back into this experience of creating. And um, thank you so much for sharing what you've said about your experience. I always find that moving into the container that we create for doing vision plans and engaging with both the image and the word moves us into this place that's actually very peaceful to create from. Mm, Yeah. Things just really flow. Creativity does not have to be something that's painful. Unfortunately, Western culture has that funny thing about that sometimes. So instead, in fact, actually, let's start from that point. The reason we use legend on this panel is because, actually, of how people hold their stories out in the real world. Um, the way we hold our stories about ourselves in Western culture, and especially in corporate America, is we use this word biography. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing because it only comes from one half of our brain, and it's very much intellect-based, and it's also something that's very much based in the past. Yeah, it's actually very much based in the past. So it has, it's, it bio is something that says this person is good at these things and these are the things that they've done to prove that they're good at these things. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do when we move into legend is we want to flip that all the way around. And we do want to think about like what's in the past, but we want to think about what's in the present and we want to pull in what's in the future. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we're, we play with is we ask questions like, um, like we do, we do little experiments. Like I ha- asked you to think about when we were working on this was, um, pretend you're a fly on the wall at a party and you're listening to all of the conversations going on and there's people drifting in and out and collecting up and you overhear someone saying something about, Oh, John, he's the one who, mm-hmm. and, 
you start to complete the sentences and see which ones resonate with me. John's the one who's the shamanic practitioner. He's the one who works on the radio show. So I'm doing very simple examples here. But what you want to do is you want to start answering the question. And it's a similar exercise to when somebody sits across from you and says, who are you? But in this one, we're weaving the, we're letting the threads that go out into the future kind of flow out in front of us. And as they flow out in front of us, we're kind of tugging on them and saying, which ones of these resonate? And while we do that, we're also going to go back to our panel on passion and let that passion inform the threads that go out. Mm. So that, because if the vision plan doesn't need to manifest everything in our life. Right. The focus and the filter is the passion and the purpose that's calling us. And okay, so so when you do a vision plan for a particular aspect of your life, the passion is sort of like the the starting block. Yeah. And then the legend is the stories that you would hear about yourself five years from now around the particular passion that you've identified. So think of the passion and the purpose as being like the question that opens the door. And then the writing on the door is sometimes like the legend, the symbols Mm -hmm. and the words and the images and the colors. It's the stories, the structure, the framework. Mm -hmm. That's a piece of the framework. Right. So in much the same way that I might have a a bio, uh, a work bio and a community service bio Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, whatever else, um, the vision plan can have a your legend is tied to the specific uh, expression of passion that you're you've captured on the first panel. Yes. So if I write if I create a small vision plan that's for just say a project, mm-hmm. um, say I create one that's just about my um, work as a visionary artist, and my passion is to use my art to shift the way um, shift the way people hold our culture, to shift our culture into a better relationship with Mother Earth, say. Mm-hmm. And that's my passion and my calling, is to, is to create art, channel these beings that come through so that their messages come through and connect with people, and that begins to shift people. Right. So then the legend that I might write from that, which I have written at various points, is that she was a visionary artist. Her art moved people. It changed the way people looked at their connection to the planet. It changed the way they looked at trees. It changed mm-hmm. the way they looked at the ocean. It changed the way they related to each other. That I start to think about, you know, I just take it and I begin to extend out the story. Right. And as you do that, you also let the em- whatever images come up. So many times um, when we do the panel on legend, one of the symbols I suggest to people is sometimes a crown. Mm-hmm. And on my panel, I wrote, she. I have a, queen, a, a crown with a heart in it and different things on it and roses. And I wrote, she who is queen of her own heart. Sometimes, though, people will put a pair of hands. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they might put a nest. I mean, there's so many different symbols that might relate to how you hold your legend. Most of my vision plans actually have a snake on it because snake is one of my power animals. And snake is, my energy is all about holding transformation both for myself and for other people. So many, many times. So this is probably the first vision plan I've done that doesn't have a snake on it. For your legend. Wow, interesting. Okay. Um, well, and I don't know if you want to describe that what you... Yeah, well, so, um, so when you suggested crown, um, that, I, that didn't really resonate with me 
you know, the, my notion of what a, you know, a classic sovereign's crown might look like. Uh, so, but what did resonate with me was, um, deer antlers, right? The rack of a deer, mm-hmm. uh, because I have a beautiful example of that here at home. Um, actually sitting right actually over. Actually sitting, participating in this conversation with us. Um, and, uh, so I, so I put that on, I put that on the page. Um, and I filled in some background color, but then there's a, there's, I didn't draw the, the head of the deer or anything. So there's a big white space waiting for something to be impressed into this mm-hmm. vision plan. So I'll have to, I, I, I have some work to do there. Apparently. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, so for example, taking, cause people do get to this place where they'll, they'll put the framework in, but they don't really know what their legend is yet. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'll move on to some of the other panels, especially these first four panels, because they really inform, they interlock and they inform each other. Um, sometimes we'll move on to Big Dream, which is the third panel, is to really speak about what the overarching dream is that holds all of the work that you're talking about in the vision plan. And sometimes that will come back and inform. The other thing sometimes we, we do is to just start free writing sort of stories. Like just take the take the phrase she who or he right, who right. and just start finishing the sentence and do five or ten of those and just start. But not not on the vision plan. Not on the vision like plan on a, right on a, away. On a Maybe on a piece of paper. Yeah, so you separate can piece of paper. Which ones that yeah. seem to resonate? Yeah, and just and as you do it, also um, any images or colors that come up is just make note of them. Mm-hmm. So it's like you go back into the visioning that you did. You go back, think of going back to the doorway that you walk through and the conversation with the muse, and now you just kind of tug on that red thread and you start answering that question, she, who, Hmm. he, who. Okay. And just let it, just, you know, tug on it, let it flow. Sometimes things come in slowly, sometimes they come in all at once. But open the door and just start asking. I mean, as we all know who do shamanic work, sometimes it's also really valuable to ask three times right right you know, to do the traditional you know we ask our ancestors and our guides you know three times who am i or yeah. okay what's my legend <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and, and then start writing it in and then the other thing to really remember as we start to move through this um vision plan is that it's not a linear process. We are engaging both the right and left side of our brain, and this is organic. Yeah. Which is why what I had you do when we went through it is we started by just doing some background colors and symbols. Right. And then we go back and we put titles on the pages. Then we go back and we might refine our symbols, and then we start adding some words. And usually sort of the last piece that comes in is more detailed text. And even mine doesn't have a whole lot of words on it at this point. But what I'll find is I'll go home and I'll get out a magic marker at some point and I'll start writing words. Not yeah. like in this big dream with the bird, like every feather may end up having a phrase or a series of words on it that starts to come into right. it. Right. And the other thing that I wanted to note is um, that even though we have four panels on the front and four panels on the back, this is an organic experience, so it, things don't have to be confined Right. We have this tendency in in our way of thinking to structure everything so so with such discipline that you can't go outside the lines. Right. Yes. And that's not really what we're 
you know, we're not constrained by that in this exercise. Right. So things can flow from one panel onto another. It can spill. Yeah. In fact, I, that's exactly what I was going to mention was, was I actually encourage folks to let things flow from one panel to the other. So, in fact, what we'll do is let's post a picture of um, some of the examples of this um, so people can see them in the little intro for the radio show because – what I find is that if you let it naturally flow, you'll find that things that want to connect are the ones that want to go across the boundaries, mm-hmm. you know, and then they'll okay. start to. So so I, my dream always seems to run into, the dream panel always seems to flow over into the beloved's panel. Oh, that's interesting. And that's so, a consistent experience for you. That, that's a consistent experience. As I tend to use, you know, a symbology of wings or bird on my dream panel and a heart on my beloved panel. And on this one, the bird is basically holding those. Yeah. So, um, and the legend panel tends to be in some ways more closely related to passion for me. Mm. It's like that's the story behind the passion. All right. Cool. And so when we establish the pa- the legend, what is evoked by that? What do we get out of, of laying out our legend? What, what, why is that important? Well, when we bring in the element of um, future as well, you know, past, or we, we can have things in there that represent the past, and we certainly want to have things that represent the present. But the big piece that we bring in with legend is future. So that we are beginning to manifest what we want to be. So what I encourage people here is this is not about where you are right here, right now. This is the legend that you want to be living in five years or two years or whatever time frame you want to put mm-hmm. on it. This is the legend that you want to be in, that your heart is calling you to go live. And it's and it's because it's a legend, it's, it's it is a story about you. So it's not it's not a story about necessarily your work. Mm-mm. Right? It's a way that you make whatever it is that you're that you're seeking to express or experience or or manifest, you make it personally connected to you and who you are and and how you how others experience you. Yes. Your lived experiences, your personal lived experiences in the world are the stories that change other people and help them to see what you do. This is something... Say that again. So your personal stories, your lived experiences in the world, the stories that we share with each other are the things that change each other. Okay. Think of how the most moving story you've ever heard from someone, and it's going to be something that, that it probably transformed them, and when you heard it, your being moved by it was a sign that you were being transformed by it too. Mm-hmm. And you almost that, that's kind of the kind of energy we want to bring in with the legend, is this is a story of somebody doing this powerful work in the world, and you read that legend and you say, that's the person I want to be. And it's your legend, and you're going to be that person because it's going to start manifesting as soon as you're writing it down. So that's actually really, that's very illuminating. It's, uh, the legend is the story that you want told because it feels like who you want to be. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's it, the heart it resonates. Of it. it resonates with some part of your soul that wants to be in that role. Yes. And it can be scary to write it. And if it's scary, you're probably on the right path. How, how nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, yes, it resonates. It's like, oh, I really wish I could be that person. That, that kind of feeling of, oh, 
and, and, and that kind of, you know, you get that kind of, oh, I don't know if I can do that, but you really, there's some part of you that really wants it, mm. that, that really wishes that, that is who you are. And that, what you want to look for is that kind of energy and you just follow it and pull out the threads. And sometimes it comes out as just a series of words. Sometimes it's actual story, but you just start pulling that out and, and answering those questions and you get some heart of that that you can then put down onto the paper. And I suspect in your case, once you do some of that, the image that needs to be on your page will also come into focus. Mm, yeah. And sometimes the image is the words. Yeah, yeah, sure. So. No, I get it. Cool. All right. Anything else you want to share about legend before we go? Um, I think that's probably it. If, if folks have questions, they can always contact me via my website, and I'd actually be happy to answer questions, too. All right. Great. And that's AnnetteWagnerArt.com? Yes, AnnetteWagnerArt.com, and they can send email to info, I-N-F-O, at AnnetteWagnerArt.com. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Annette. We'll be back next time to talk about... Dream. Dream. All right. Great. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. Do you have a workshop, protocol, or modality that you'd like to explore with our audience? Come and join us on the air. Share why you love it, how it illuminates our gifts, and empowers us to live more fully. Share your inspiration. You never know who might be listening and whose lives you'll touch. Contact me, John Carasella, on Facebook or by email at jc at fireflywillows.com for details. Welcome back. I'm John Carasella, and this is A Shamanic Life. Next up is an excerpt of a conversation I had with Yevgeny Isekin. Yevgeny is a friend and colleague of mine that I've known for several years now, and he has some very interesting perspectives and experiences collected through a variety of disciplines, starting with Qigong. From there, Yevgeny traveled around the world, finding experiences with masters and indigenous teachers from a diverse set of lineages. I wanted to share this excerpt with you because... Yevgeny has developed a set of workshops around his experiences that I think you might find interesting. Mark Friday, April 5th on your calendars for a preview of what he has to offer. Let's listen to our conversation. Share a little bit about how you were trained. All right, so I um, got 10 years of training in Qigong. Oh, my master's over here. And uh, I also went to China for a couple months to study Qigong. Hmm. And uh, the last years I was traveling the world, studying with uh, shamans, mediums, masters. What did you find that you got from the time that you spent with these various indigenous folks and or, or just culturally different folks? What did you get out of that? Well, they're all different. And... Um, I was very lucky to meet very powerful shamans that maybe like are they're pretty unique. Like this guy in um, Siberia who could freeze a river. Well, according to the story, he they are tribal people. They're deer herders and they they live in the forest. And uh, it was the springtime and the river came out. And when the river comes out there, it's it's a huge flood. And he ended up on the island with his deer. And so what he did, he went into trance and he made a small path, ice path, out of the island onto the shore and he walked out with his deer. Mm. So 
that's a pretty commanding uh, control of the elements. Yeah. In case. And, yeah. And what was he like? You know, um, he doesn't like people much because apparently he has much better connection with nature and with elements and like even with his tribe, it's like 10 people that are living next to each other in a tent and he stands, stands separately. Mm-hmm. He had his own wolf. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, he is a person. He's not a god. He's not a somebody you would worship. So I was lucky to be able to watch him, you know. And he's, he's a human. Yeah. Every time I go to somebody, they kind of give me some access and power that I can use. And I, I never know how am I going to use and when, but... When I make a request to the universe and I'm getting the right configuration for make that request come through, it's through one of those channels that I have gotten from those guys. Ah, okay. So, so it's it's not like uh, you have incorporated a whole discipline from these guys because you don't study with them for, for that long. Yeah. But you yes. experience something about them that resonates with you, that some technique or some um, attunement, in a sense, that it's, you can then match. Yeah, it's usually the attunements that I was getting. Mm-hmm. So what, what have you what have you brought back with you? You've been traveling for like the better part of a year. been over in Russia and China and so on, Mongolia, right? So I... Um, pretty much put together the techniques that some of them I learned and some of them I just uh, created. Mm-hmm. And it's called the magic of pure consciousness. It's based on a philosophy. Everything is a contract. Everything is a contract. Yes. Uh, okay, so the magic of pure consciousness is uh, is a workshop? It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a series of workshops. Okay, and the the contract piece. How mm-hmm. does that play into this the, the the work that you do? Well, to understand what contract is, uh, for me, it's the uh, the idea that we have prior to coming into this form, we mm-hmm. have. And agreed to experience certain things in the in the presence of others, right? So mm-hmm. we've agreed to have certain experiences that are best facilitated by being in the presence of others. Typically, a contract is an agreement. Yes, 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 yes. All right. So it's pretty much uh, describes. You just describe what your contract is. Mm. Okay. Which is like the way you see things for you, and that's how you contract with yourself about how things are okay so yeah. uh, in, in and uh, and I agree with you uh, we have much more interaction with humans than we do with anything else and uh, well I wouldn't say there is more interaction but there is more dynamic things that are coming up 
when we interact with humans. Yeah, interacting with humans brings up more of our garbage, more of our, yes, uh, you know. Yes, they, they activate stuff, yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's correct. The, the humans activate things in us, and uh, um, they activate things on many different levels. Uh, a lot of our limitations is in our uh, mind and the mind is the part that describes how things are right and that's what creates the fixed structures like this uh, this room is that shape and that color is blue and um, the contract is something where people have agreed how things are Sure. All right. So, but it's a right when you don't make it the most important part of your being. Okay. Let's talk about that a little bit more. All right. What do you mean by that? All right. So people, um, remember we talked last time and it was not recorded about the map and the terrain. Mm -hmm. So there is there is this terrain and there is this map that every person makes that describes the terrain. Right. And we make the map more important than the yes, terrain. Yes, we make the map more important. More important than the terrain, yes. But but by making it more important, we are greatly limiting ourselves. And our agreeing that that color is blue is part of the map? It, it, it is. Well, it's okay to agree that it's blue as long as... Um, As long as um, you see other things beyond that, you look at this and you say, this is blue. Right. You see how small it makes your world when you put a definition on something and um, you're not allowing yourself to, to see that there is way more to that than just being blue. So part of that I get and agree that in that it's not just blue, it's also fabric, it's also has texture, it also maybe has a smell and so on and so forth. But that's also definitions. Right. And then if you put it all apart and you stop defining things and you look at that and uh, you will start to see the energy of it. So, so this is the other part is that, that there's a Naming naming things is part of the collapsing from unity into duality. Exactly. Well, because as soon as you name it, you 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 basically break its you you break at least that characteristic of it out of the whole. Kind of, kind of. But but you can still name it and understand that this is just a name and if you view it differently the naming that you made is not gonna limit you okay so my experience uh, is that that's one of the goals of, of Zen meditation mm -hmm. is to not allow the mental constructs to interfere with experience mm -hmm. And when there you, you go. when you do that, you, what you experience is much more is is vastly enriched. It's it's vastly increased. Mm-hmm. There you go. 
And going back to contracts, so naming things would be an example of a contract that we're making. Right. And how we treat that would be an example of a contract. Like, do we treat it as uh, as a terrain or do we treat it as a map? It's so concrete and real to us that that, that is blue. Mm-hmm. That it's a it is an impediment. It's a blockage to a greater understanding or experience of that thing. Can you help us transcend that? Move through the name into the openness of it? Yeah, I can move your assemblage point. So can you define in the, the assemblage point what you mean by that? All right, so the assemblage point is... Um, we have an energetic cocoon. And the cocoon has that thing that's it's like an hourglass. It's where the energy of me goes out into the world and the energy of the world goes into me. And that point where the energy exchange happens, it's like the energy exchange between two realities, the reality of you and the reality of the world. Okay, so it's the interaction between that which is you and that which is not you. Right. And it happens through the interface of the assemblage point. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So perhaps perhaps what is assembling is is the awareness of all of these things well it is your level of awareness definitely okay because you know the the position of the point determines your level of awareness your vibrational level okay so so talk, talk a little bit about that because I think one of the things you do is you move the assemblage point for people or you show them what it's like to have well I start I start with that I start with that um, that's the very first thing because some people say and they come and they say I don't feel the energy mm-hmm. and uh, when I move it for them it's uh, they cannot say this anymore it's the point of your consciousness and uh, maybe the reason it's called assemblage because it's where your consciousness gets assembled and the consciousness of the world meets it. The way I see it. Okay. All right. So, so what do? Uh, so, what's what is the what's the nature of the of the magic of pure consciousness that you want to share? What what happens for people? What? All right. So, there is a whole story about the assemblage point. And um, when you go into this place of now thoughts it moves all the way up to the the uh, third eye chakra okay and usually it's around the second or third chakra on majority of the people mm-hmm. and um, healers uh, usually work with the fourth chakra um, that's a rare thing, but pretty much the, the vibrational range of the humanity is from the first to the fourth chakra. The magic starts in the fifth chakra. That's the place of power that you work from. So when I <clears throat> work on my blockages, I move my assemblage point at least to the third chakra. And uh, the power increases enough so that the blockages could be removed fast. And, you know, the assemblage point is not your active chakra. Mm. Okay, so that's an important distinction. It's not so much that you're saying that 
the magic happens in the throat chakra. You're saying the magic starts when your assemblage point is at your throat chakra. Exactly. Okay, so what does that actually mean? With your, that your assemblage point would be at your throat chakra. What's, what's going on in that situation? What do you feel? Alright, so pretty much the best thing would be for them to come to the seminar and for me to show them what it feels like. And I don't want to tell them what it's going to feel like before they felt it themselves because I don't want to create the expectation. The expectation. But what happens is um, with the throat chakra and higher chakras, obviously the higher you put it, the higher your vibrations are, the more your power is. And what does one do with that power? Like you want to work, oh, what would you do with the power? You want to work on your blockages? Yeah. Like, wouldn't you want to spend an hour clearing a blockage or wouldn't you want to spend a minute? Okay, so so self-healing is or, or healing others hap- is uh, something that's accessible with this power. Healing others and uh, not only physical healing, but you know, we have all kinds of blockages. Blockages to making money, blockages to self-realization, blockages to self-love, mm-hmm. blockages to relationships. You know, removing the limitations mm-hmm. that are blockages. Right. You know, the higher your vibrations are, the more efficient you are with that. So that sounds pretty cool. Um, so let's ju- let's just talk a little bit about some um, logistics for this for your seminar series. What what, what would people what are people what should people expect? All right. So um, right now I'm planning on having the um, weekend workshops. So I'm going to have a presentation on Friday the fifth, and um, after that, maybe the same weekend, maybe a couple weekends later, there will be an actual workshop. Okay. How, so how can people find out more about this if they want to participate? My website, which is atanaki.com, www.atanaki.com. Right. Okay. After our conversation, which lasted another 20 minutes or so, and believe me, it was full of illuminating information, I asked Evgeny to give me a sample of his work in raising my assemblage point and working on blockages. I chose specifically to work on my tendency to be fascinated by the map and by building the map instead of hanging out in the terrain. I have to say, it was a powerful and intriguing experience. It also feels like a tool I can revisit to help continue working on and removing blockages. I'm very pleased with the results. Evgeny's presentation and introduction to The Magic of Pure Consciousness is on April 5th at 7.30 p.m., at the Los Gatos Acupuncture and Qigong Center, 761 University Ave, Suite A, in Los Gatos. The price is $15. Visit his website, atanaki.com, A-T-A-N-A-K-I.com, for more details. We'll be right back. We live in an American-dominated world, with a worldview we inherited from the British, who were in turn profoundly influenced by the Norse. And the power of the Norse is the power of the runes. Come join me for a monthly study group to understand these deep, hidden, archetypal powers. They're all around us. Better to see and understand them. For details, contact me, John Carousella, on Facebook or by email at jc at fireflywillows.com. 
Welcome back. I'm John Carousella, and this is A Shamanic Life. Now for our segment, The Sensory Experience, with Gina Carousella. Gina, thank you for joining me on the show. It's good to be here. And we have, uh, what do we have today? Late season rain. Yes, uh, late season rain came about um, after a walk around the block, and it was twilight, um, and clouds had, had rolled in earlier in the day, and it had just started to sprinkle when we started walking. Mm. Oh, so so you were in the rain? Yes. This wasn't after the rain? No, this was as the rain was starting. So we started out, and it was mostly dry, and as we walked, the rain started falling a little bit heavier. And so what, what caught your fancy about this experience? I actually, I love the rain. I love the way the rain sounds. I love the way the rain smells. I love the way the rain feels. So it was, you know, it was very nice to be out in it and to be able to experience the start of it because the start of rainfall is really very different than the middle of rainfall or when the rain is tapering off. Oh, well, okay, so two questions. Does does the rain have a smell or is it only what smell the the rain evokes from the from the surroundings? That's I think open to interpretation. Mm. Rain I feel does have a smell of its own and it's a very clean wet smell. Mm. But it also evokes a very strong smell from the ground. Yeah, sure. From wet asphalt or wet dirt. Everything has a different smell when it's wet. Mm, right. And the other question was, oh, what was the other question? What were you saying? <laughs> uh, oh, the beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so do you have a favorite? I actually really like it right as the rain starts. Right as the rain starts. Wow. So this was a, this was a, a perfect capture. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, why don't you share late season rain with us? Late season rain. The sun has set, but the heavy gray clouds are still illuminated with the last hint of twilight glow. The half-light is cold, sharpening gray and blue, and muting white and yellow, washing out the shadows not by brightening the empty places, but by darkening everything that surrounds them. It looks like the last gasps of autumn, like the creeping approach of winter, yet it is the cusp of spring. The muggy, warm smell of freshly damp asphalt rises up in a comforting fog, inviting and promising, humid and fresh, and in stark contrast to the way the cold air bites at my cheeks. Fragments of other smells, the sharp bite of wood smoke, the clean, fruity sweet of magnolia, the cloying, tempting, true sweet of jasmine. Ride the back of the clean, fresh rain and the heavy, wet bitter of damp mulch. A cloud of smoke rises from a chimney, pale white, melting into the crisp white and shivery gray of the clouds, only after winding like mist around the stark sharp white and black of birch trunks. Mm. 
Everywhere, in every direction, the frantic pitter-patter of drops striking mutes the usual sounds. The roads are quieter, the drone of airplanes inaudible, and only a few harried songbirds are still about, their sullen whistles replacing chipper song. Are you a spiritually inspired musician or performance artist? Join our show for Spirit, Muse, and Song. We'd love to enjoy your work and your story and share it with our audience. Contact us at facebook.com slash shamaniclife or send a message to Karen Armstrong, karen at shamaniclife.com or me, jc at fireflywillows.com. We'll be excited to hear from you. Welcome back. I'm John Carasella, and this is A Shamanic Life. Up next, our segment, Spirit, Muse, and Song, where we share the gifts and the insights of spiritually inspired musicians and performance artists. Today we have the music of Stephen McNamara. Stephen has been playing and recording music for over 40 years. He's a composer, musician, and a recording engineer, which gives him total freedom in any music or recording environment. Born in South Africa, Stephen started learning piano and guitar at the age of seven. And at the age of 21, Stephen moved to the United States, where he trained at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Stephen also discovered Indian music and studied the sitar with Ram Chakravarti of Benares, India, who was at the time a music professor at Wesleyan College. So this exposure to such a broad spectrum of music, ranging from world to pop, has contributed to the unique musical style he's developed over the years. Stephen has worked with a huge spectrum of recording artists, from Paul Winter to Tina Turner, from Brian Adams to Zakir Hussain. He now lives in Ashland, Oregon, where he spends his time doing freelance recording, original music production, live performances, and organic gardening. I know you'll enjoy his music. Let's listen to an excerpt from Bittersweet, from his 2012 album, Shanti Guitar.
was Bittersweet by Stephen McNamara off of his album Shanti Guitar, and we are lucky to have Stephen with us uh, on the show today. Welcome, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, John. I'm so happy to be here and be part of your show. I'm almost tongue-tied, I have to admit, uh, because your music is very powerful. It's thank you. It's so sweet, and I, you know, I have a... I guess I have a sweet spot for Indian music anyway, but there's something about the way you built these. It's sort of modern Indian. Would you say it that way? 
I would say it, it is modern because it's come from a uh, you know I'm being a Westerner, have not grown up in that culture, but somehow the spirit of that music captured me at an early age and has always been there even though I've been involved in all kinds of music and I think that has been distilling and growing for a lifetime and it's, it's what you hear now you know, it's this synthesis of a westerner absorbing a culture like the Indian music now so you've had a long career you grew up in South Africa Yes. And how did that influence your musical experience? Well, when I was growing up, I heard so much of the traditional African music because being around those people all the time, watching people working and singing, and then also when when they would get together for ceremonies and uh, celebrations, I think that must have been the very earliest influence. I think that's the, my earliest memory, is that is the sound and the feeling of that music. I sort of imagine that everybody who grew up in South Africa um, it came from, a, from an urban area in South Africa. Is that your experience? Were you from, from like Johannesburg or something? Yeah, I, I am from Johannesburg, but my uncle had a farm way in the north oh. uh, near a place called Petersburg, but they were a good 30 miles away from any town on this pristine, unspoiled land. Oh, wow. And all the Africans had their, you know, they, they, they worked as laborers on that farm, but they had their traditional villages and huts on that land. So that was the complete opposite of the urban experience. Wow. Yeah, okay. That. And I spent a lot of time there in, in my early years. Mm. Okay, so that somehow you you've got exposed to this Indian influence, this Indian classical influence. Tell us about that. Well, that happened quite a bit later. I mean, I I went through the whole teenage Beatles, rock and roll era, jazz, blues. Um, when I was about seventeen or eighteen, I heard a Ravi Shankar record in a record store in Johannesburg. Which in those days, uh, that sort of thing was very hard to come by. Anything, any type of music that wasn't absolutely the top, you know, top forty was imported. Hmm. So someone may have imported it, just decided not to get it. And I was absolutely just fascinated by the feeling of that music. Although there also is a, quite a large Indian community in South Africa, but the music that I heard there was more their modern kind of film music. Hmm. Once I heard the classical music, something deep inside really started resonating. And so when I first came to the United States in the early 70s, I happened to be in Boston when Ravi Shankar was coming through on a tour and saw him live. Wow. And that was just such a vast difference from a record that uh, that was the final straw. You know, that, 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 thing that was budding inside burst open and I was just fascinated, enthralled by the whole experience mm. and, and luckily found a teacher from India who was not far from where I lived and I started taking lessons. That's fantastic. Yeah. So what can you tell us about the raga? It's a musical form, right? 
it is a musical form and it's been in in existence for centuries um the earliest indian music as i understand came out of the the vedic era where they used sound and chants in their temples in their religious ceremonies and to have certain healing effect on people i mean there so many ragas have been created for very specific reasons and um i think the best way to explain that is that the tr- the translation of raga is that which colors the mind you know i think the those yogis were able to perceive this at a higher level than just understanding they f- they knew the effect of notes played in a certain way maybe certain rhythms would have uh the desired effect on on the people participating so the raga form evolved over the centuries more into what it is now but um the main point of raga too is that it takes one emotion or one particular mood and everything focuses on that the whole the all the music in that particular raga is constructed to invoke and to keep growing that mood until one becomes totally immersed in it you know in in the western music especially even classical the mood is changing all the time we have a serious part and then it'll lighten up and go into something else it it a lot of music is changing but the raga focuses on the one emotion the one mood the one power hmm. and the information that you sent me um so that i could prep you you wrote it's considered like a living musical entity Yes. So to explain that, when the ancient yogis who were masters of sound were able to play and perform the ragas correctly, they felt or they perceived the manifestation of the raga. In other words, in their culture the raga already existed. It was only merely a discovery by man to, you know, to actually realize that it, its existence. Oh. So you know uh they they felt once if a raga is performed correctly that almost like a deity or a goddess or whatever that power is in nature would actually manifest i mean they have ragas the ancient ragas for instance to make it rain and when certain uh highly evolved musicians would sing those ragas rain would come like maybe the rain dances Yeah, the native americans or the in other tribal or shamanic cultures they realized the power of sound to produce certain things you know? but but this is a different way of thinking about it i've never heard it described this way and it's really it's really getting me steven this is really cool yeah. it's not that the sound produces something so much as the sound invites the emergence of something that's already there yes and that, i think that 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 is the key you know that is so cool i will never make music the same way again <laughs> and i think i think um to go back to my music that i think that's the feeling that is underneath all of this even though there's more sort of a western uh approach to it or you know it it seems to be easy for the westerners to listen to this music 
Whereas Indian classical music, it's kind of an acquired thing, and uh, you know, not that it feels foreign to to a lot of Westerners. But um, that power or that feeling, I feel like that's what has happened over these years. It's distilled in me, and been able to somehow come out in the music. So it's almost like. Um if if I can imagine being you for a moment, it's as if you've learned a language or an art form that it, it, it is like a language that allows you to communicate with and and invite into our presence the forms that are just behind the veil. Yes. And uh, I agree with you completely. And you know, when you're in a, if you go to a traditional performance by a, a highly evolved Indian musician and his accompaniment, by the, by the time the evening's over, I think you have entered into that realm mm. because it's so powerful that the audience also becomes part of the music. Oh. It's not just it's not a, a passive thing or you know a performer playing at you. Mm. It's an invitation to to be in that and to participate and the more receptive the audience is the more it grows and the more powerful it becomes. Wow. It's something people should experience if they can. Yeah, and I and I you you have said more than once now um an evolved musician. Well, the training of an Indian musician in the classical way is done probably very much like a lot of the ancient cultures. It's, it's handed down person, from person to person in India from guru to shishya or disciple. It's a living tradition. They don't write it down. Although there are notes, there's certain notes just to remind you of things. But you cannot learn that music unless you learn it from someone who has become that music. And so th this music has been passed down for centuries from person to person and person, and it still exists as it existed hundreds and thousands of years ago. You can't learn that music unless you learn it from someone who has become that music. Yes. Yeah. And their whole way of teaching is, it's almost like, you know, parrot-like. You start very simply, you sing or play one note or then two notes over and over and over again. It's an incredible discipline. They, they have to spend years maybe practicing 12, 14 hours a day, sometimes maybe four to five years on one raga until it becomes absolutely, you know, they're absolutely merged in it. Yeah, their ego has to be deconstructed in the, in the presence of yeah, it. Yeah, the, the way of life is, I mean, total devotion. You know, they, they don't have a social life, I don't think. Wow. They're too busy being in the music, you know, and it, th that's tough for, uh, you know, in our modern Western world to maybe live that kind of life. I think you'd have to be born into it. Yeah. And you would, it would have to be supported, you know, yeah. in that whole endeavor. It's like it's like a priesthood kind of, right? Thing. Yeah. So, how? Tell us about your your muse. What do you do to to come into contact with this these 
entities, these magical musical beings well, that are just around the corner? Um, I don't really have a magic practice, but I think you have to live a very clean life. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've had alcohol or drugs for uh, 40 years. I'm vegetarian. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to be all that, but I know that the, the, they live a very pure life, just like the yogis do, who right. do the yogic practices. I think there has to be a, a purity in your... You have to live the life, I think, to be able to play or be in this kind of music. So when you say my muse, I think it's just something that's evolved over a long time but somehow I I don't know whether on this show you get into you know we should get into uh, past lives and things like that but you're welcome to <laughs> you know what they call sanskara in in the Indian culture is like the the feelings and the impressions of having done something before that you now remember hmm. you know so it's possible this has kind of carried over from somewhere else because it was always, it was like an awakening and remembering to me rather than something new. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I didn't know exactly, you know, I, I got inklings of it as I grew up, but once I heard the Indian music, it was like, oh yeah, this is the thing that grabs me. You know, this is the deep one. This is the... Wow. That's so interesting. Okay, so we're going to listen to another one of your pieces. It's called Moon Magic. Yes. Now, um, tell us a little bit about, about this piece. Well, this piece was inspired by um, a, a Raga's uh, Jinjoti and Gara, I think. Uh, these days, there's actually more of the kind of hybridizing sometimes of a couple of Ragas that cover... A certain thing but the feeling of this one is um, it's a moonlight it's very romantic and tender and the vision I got was of two lovers meeting in a magic garden you know like it, for me it would be probably in India with mango trees and you know have, how they have these beautiful uh, hidden gardens mm -hmm. and uh, you know it may even go more deeper into the idea of the of Krishna and his beloved, you know, and uh, that type of thing. It's 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 the lovers meeting in secret and enjoying each other. Well, let's hear that. Okay, so we're going to go out uh, with moon magic. But before we go, I know some of our listeners are going to want to get in touch with your music more. So let's direct them to the best way to get to you. What What is your website? It's yogitar.com. And that's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. So it's yogitar, not, not guitar, the instrument. And you have a Facebook page as well. Yes. Facebook.com slash Stephen dash McNamara. And Stephen is S-T-E-V-I-N hyphen McNamara M-C-N-A M-A-R-A. -A. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you so much, John. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I thank you for inviting me and for being so sensitive to the music 
and uh, getting it out to your people. I really appreciate it very much. All right, and this is Moon Magic by Stephen McNamara.
thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for What's Your Prescription for Balance with Mildred Lynn McDonald and Dr. Glenna Calder, Thursday afternoon at 3.30 p.m.